Welcome to Healthcare Unfiltered, a Shadi Nabhan podcast. My name is Shadi Nabhan, and I am your host. I'm a hematologist and medical oncologist, and I have interest in all aspects of healthcare delivery, treatment, leadership, mentorship, and policy. Healthcare Unfiltered is a podcast that discusses all aspects of healthcare beyond oncology, despite the fact that I'm an oncologist. We also discuss policy issues and societal issues that have implications on healthcare, whether you are a patient, a family member, or a physician. Previously, I hosted the Outspoken Oncology between February 2019 and September 2020, and you can check out those episodes on SoundCloud or iTunes. And then we shifted to Healthcare Unfiltered, which is a more reflection of the topics that I cover in general healthcare. Today you are in for a treat. I decided to tackle the issue of MRD, or Minimal Residual Disease, or Measurable Residual Disease. So, I think there's a lot that has been discussed about minimal residual disease. There are those on one side of the aisle that propose that minimal residual disease is absolutely essential and important in driving clinical care. And there's the opposite view that minimal residual disease might have some prognostic implications, but we really do not know if it has any impact on clinical care. It's also important to realize that while minimal residual disease as a test is ordered by hematologists and medical oncologists, it is usually performed by the pathologist and interpreted by the pathologist. So, in doing that, we need to realize and understand that there's obviously way more additional specialties beyond medical oncology or hematology that, involve, that are involved in taking care of patients. And the pathologist is really an integral component of the clinical care team. While pathologists do not routinely see patients, they are heavily involved in how patients are cared for. So to tackle the issue of minimal residual disease, what in the world is minimal, is minimal residual disease? How does it get tested? Why does it get tested? What do I do with the test results? How do I interpret the test results? I thought the best way to do this is by hosting a pathologist and a medical oncologist. So today with me on the podcast, uh, I have the pleasure of hosting Dr. Amit Kini, who is a professor of pathology at Loyola University, and he's the medical director of the flow cytometry and the medical director in hematopathology. And actually, Amit and I, we were together when we were both fellows at Northwestern University, and he tolerated a lot of my stupid questions about pathology when I would go down to the pathology lab and uh, ask him to look at some pathology slides with me. He was nice enough never to tell me, but what kind of stupid question are you asking? Uh, so Amit is going to provide really the pathologist perspective, but also I have the pleasure of having Dr. Patrick Hagen with me who is a hematologist and medical oncologist at Loyola University. And he's going to really provide more the clinical aspect of minimal residual disease and how does he really utilizes the minimal residual disease data in practice in, in the clinical decision-making. 
So I hope that by having Amit Kinney and Patrick Hagen with me on this podcast, we get a well-rounded discussion into how best we approach mineral residual disease. I think it's fair to say it's a little bit of a controversial issue, and that's why I need to have both all with me on this podcast. We actually taped this episode on campus at Loyola University, and I have a soft spot for Loyola in my heart because that's where I did my residency training back in the day. I'm not going to tell you when because that will give away my age. Before I air the episode of uh, Minimal Residual Disease with Amit Kinney and Patrick Hagen, I would like to ask you to check us out on all podcast outlets that you possibly have. You can find us on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, TuneIn, Stitcher, any podcast outlet that you usually utilize. Please refer a friend or a colleague to the podcast. Hopefully, a word of mouth will play a long way in bringing additional listeners to this podcast. If you have time, give us the number of stars you believe we deserve and write a brief review. It would be very much appreciated. Without further ado, All Issues MRD with the duet Kenny and Hagen from Loyola University Medical Center. Okay, well, here we are at Loyola University Medical Center at the Cardinal Bernadine Cancer Center. I had done my residency here, but it's always nice to uh, come back to uh, these hallways where I trained back in the day and where I initially fell in love with oncology. Today, I have two esteemed guests. We are going to talk about um, an interesting topic that there's a lot of, lot of talk about it in uh, not just only uh, scientific articles, peer-reviewed literature, but sometimes in the lay press, lay media, and we're going to try to level set and understand everything about minimal residual disease or measurable residual disease or MRD. And to help us dissect that, I have two doctors, not just one. So you get two for the price of one, Dr. Amit Kini and Dr. Patrick Hagen. And uh, Amit and I, we have worked together back in the day when we were at Northwestern University. I was a fellow and you were doing your hematology uh, fellowship as well. So it's always nice to connect with you. For the listeners who don't know you and don't follow your photographs on Twitter because you're an avid photographer, we're going to do a little bit of introduction so folks can know who both of you are and what you do day in and day out. So Amit, we'll start with you. So I'm currently a professor of pathology and also director of the division of hematopathology and the director of the flow cytometry laboratory. And uh, I've been at Loyola for a long time. Again, I don't want to get into how long. Um, but before that, like you said, we, I was at Northwestern where I also did a lot of training, uh, did a PhD residency. And I would say the highlight of my time was when we OLAPed. <laughs> Um, was it a year or two? I think yeah, it was maybe one year. Um, um, and just before we got on air, we were talking about um, we were fortunate to have great mentors, um, such as Loan Peterson in hematopathology, Chuck Goolsby, flow cytometry, Marty Tolman, Jane Winter, um, Leo Gordon, many others. And, and we were just talking about how um, the philosophy um, and the ideas that they got, we got from them have um, influenced us. Uh, and I think one of the most important things is that 
how important it is to work as a team. And Loan, as you know, we always do say that we should be, uh, hematopathologists should be part of the clinical team taking care of the patient. And uh, I'm really fortunate here at uh, Loyola to have fantastic clinicians and we, uh, you know, Patrick and others, and we form, I think, a really good team working together. And I think that's best uh, for the patients for, to make the best possible diagnosis. So, What so, got you into pathology? What made you interested in pathology? Yeah, I think I'm I was always interested in research. Um, and before I did my residency, uh, I did a PhD in cell and molecular biology. And so pathology, as you know, gets into the mechanisms of disease and it works well with, you know, doing research. And so that's when I got into pathology. I think it worked very well uh, with my interest in disease mechanism. And I, I, I would say that more specifically hematopathology, um, I was influenced by Loan, but I'll tell you one anecdote. So the first week that I was at Northwestern, I uh, listened to a talk by Martin Tolman, Marty Tolman, and he was talking about APL, and remember this was the uh, mid to late 90s when, you know, ATRA and all that was published. He had published an NEGM paper, and I was so fascinated. And this, remember, this was the first week, uh, and it was right then that I decided I want to do hemopath. So, so that's you know, how I got into path and then later into hematopathology. And is that what made you an avid photographer? You like photography because yeah. of your fascination by hematopathology yeah. and slides and all that stuff? Yeah, yeah. So, um, so I'm interested in obviously the microscopic aspect, but as you know from my Twitter feed, um, I'm interested in astrophotography. So, so someone said, how do you reconcile the two? So uh, the way I look at it, uh, it, the microscopic things are things that are near but are really small, so we use a microscope to you know photograph them. And the telescopic things, you're talking about galaxies and things, they're really big, but they're far. Um, so here I am expanding my visual experience by either using a microscope or a telescope, and I think that's a privilege to be able to do that. So, yeah. so. No, you, you, you have amazing uh, photographs. Patrick, thanks also for joining us. A little bit about you and what got you uh, into oncology and what do you do day in and day out? Yeah, so I'm one of the um, faculty here in the Department of uh, Hematology and Stem Cell Bone Marrow Transplant. So I'm really more of a hematologist um, by training and by profession. Um, I've been at Loyola now for six years, which is as long as I've been anywhere actually in my life, um, having moved around a lot and trained in a lot of different places. And I, I guess my, my journey really started and when I was in, um, in medical school, I actually thought I wanted to become an infectious disease physician. And as I kind of went around the wards and then moved into my residency, I quickly realized that some of the coolest infections were actually in bone marrow transplant patients. So as I kind of moved into my training, I got really interested in malignant hematology, so leukemia, lymphoma, and then ultimately myeloma. So I did my residency in Minnesota where some of really the founders of stem cell transplant trained and they really created um, the field in many ways and then transitioned here to Loyola where again, um, some of the leaders in the field, Pat Stiff here and then people like Dan Weisdorf, Claudio Brunstein in Minnesota, I'm um, really cemented my interest in, in high-dose chemotherapy and stem cell transplant. And then really since I've started as faculty, my, my specific interest has even nailed more into um, plasma cell disorders. So most of my patients that I see on a day-to-day -day basis have um, diagnoses of multiple myeloma or amyloidosis. Um, but I do see many, a wide variety of, of hematological malignancies, which is obviously very relevant to our discussion today in terms of um, MRD as part of their care.
Yeah, and with myeloma specifically, I think that would be very interesting. So, Amit, let's just uh, level set a little bit. When we talk MRD, minimal visual disease, measurable visual disease, just for people who are listening to us, they may think we're crazy. What are we talking about? Yeah, so as you said, uh, for a long time we used the term minimal residual disease, and now people prefer measurable residual disease. Um, I'm fine with either, let's just call it MRD. But what we're referring to is detection of a very small amount of cancer cells after treatment. Uh, and, and the amount depends on the disease. So if you look at um, AML, typically you use one in a thousand, um, so that's 0.1%. And in um, other diseases, you're talking about one in 10,000 cells, so that's 0.01%. And, uh, and we're getting um, better and better uh, at it, so the sensitivity is increasing. So, so these are cells you can't see microscopically right, or right. by whatever. Right, right. Okay. So that's true. So these, what we measure uh, with MRD, the sensory is much better than the traditional methods. And traditional methods are looking at the microscope, doing conventional cytogenetic analysis or fish analysis. Uh, but I must say, in defense of uh, morphology, and this goes back to back when I was in training, you know, we were looking at um, a bone marrow specimen. And, you know, when you look at a bone marrow specimen aspirate, you're looking at tens of thousands of cells. And I was looking with Luann Peterson, it looked great, but she found one cell within our art. So, so with some exceptions, you know, we can, uh, morphology can be uh, pretty sensitive, but in, in general, it's very hard to distinguish, you know, if there's like one malignant blast and some regenerative cells, it's very, very hard to distinguish with conventional methods. And so that's when the MRD methods uh, are used to have a really sensitive um, method of measuring leukemic cells or cancer cells that exist after treatment. And what I mean, to measure these um, existing or residual cancer cells that traditional methods fail to detect, I guess I'm going to pretend I'm a layman person. Number one is how often do traditional methodologies fail to do that? And how do you measure MRD? Like what type of, not to go too much of technicality, but really how do we actually measure it? Right. So... If you look with very sensitive techniques, almost all patients will have MRD after, say, induction. Um, you know, when we say do a day 14 marrow or something like that, we, we usually see nothing by morphology, but we know there's disease, which is why there's more therapies that they get. So um, I, I would say that at the initial stages of chemotherapy, we may not see anything by morphology, but there will almost always be some amount of MRD. Now, after consolidation, there's probably less uh, incidence of MRD, but that too depends on the sensory of the technique. And, uh, and I think the expertise of the pathologist. Right, that too. <laughs> Not to yeah. In yeah. So. yeah, yeah. Unfortunately, we, you know, there's a reason why I think we train and specialize even in pathology, because we often get samples that maybe are looked elsewhere and we may have different findings. So, right, right. you know, there's technicality and then there's, you know, I yeah. think expertise too. Yeah. So, so it yeah. helps to, you know, like anything, if you're specialized in one field, it definitely helps uh, with your evaluation. And in terms of, I think, the question is about techniques, um, the traditionally, uh, the most common has been uh, flow cytometry, and uh, and the traditional flow cytometry has been the four to five color flow cytometry, and uh, the uh, sensory of flow has been about uh, one in a thousand to one in ten thousand cells, so ten to the 
third, then to the fourth. So if I have a patient who is listening who has absolutely no clue what flow cytometry yeah. is, yeah. now he thinks we're talking something different. What, right. what, what, are, we, what right. are we really telling him? So flow cytometry is a technique we use every day, and basically what we do is we take the cells from a sample, and in this case, let's say it's a leukemic uh, sample, and then we stain the cells with different colors which detect um, expression of different um, antigens on the cell. And that helps us know whether the cell is normal or if it's abnormal. And then what we do is once we stain the cells, we run it through a machine. Uh, and uh, the machine has a laser which detects expression of different um, antigens on the cell. So, so it's a very kind of a high-tech method. Um, and it's a very fast method. So we can literally analyze hundreds of thousands of cells in a few minutes. And so, um, so it's a very rapid technique, very uh, sensitive and pretty specific to tell us uh, whether there's leukemia. And also it tells us what type of leukemia it is or lymphoma, whatever it is, whatever malignancy it is. And traditionally, it's been what we call a single laser. So you had one laser, and we can measure about five to seven different parameters. Uh, but now we're using, we just got new instruments which have like three lasers and uh, ten colors. So everything is advancing. But flow cytometry is this really, um, you know, wonderful technique for us because it's fast. Uh, and it's you know. the most common way to yes. detect MRD. Right. Are right. there other techniques that you, well, let's say, so you do flow cytometry. Right. right. And you don't see the cell. You do right. four or five color flow, right. and you don't detect any residual cell. Right. Right. Do you stop there, or you say, I'm going to go further and right. do more tests because maybe the flow did not detect something right. smaller? Right. So that would depend on the disease, and also depends on what kind of flow you're running. So just to uh, go through the other techniques, other than flow cytometry, we also have PCR-based techniques, and those come in uh, many different flavors. Um, there's... Uh, the allele-specific oligonucleotide PCR, uh, which can be used in diseases such as myeloma. And then it also depends on what target you're looking at and which disease. And that can be pretty sensitive. So we're talking about 10 to the fifth, so one in 100,000 or so, um, you can achieve with PCR. And now you must also heard about NGS, or deep sequencing techniques. And those are still, you know, being developed, uh, but those in theory, could be even more sensitive. So we're talking about one in a million cells, so 10 to the sixth. Uh, lots of, sort of technical challenges with that, but um, and it also depends on which disease. NGS may be good for some, but not for others. But those can also be used. But um, So I would say that the technique you use would depend on the disease and what you're doing, whether you have a clinical trial or not. Uh, do you, as a pathologist, do you... When you get a sample, whether it's blood or uh, a bone marrow mm -hmm. from a hematologic malignancy, and um, you look at the clinical history and you know where the patient is, do you decide to check on the MRD status on your own, or do you pick up the phone and talk to Patrick right. and right. ask, or does Patrick pick up? I'm going to ask the same question right. to Patrick. When do you decide to do right. it on right. your own versus not? Right. So uh, for our own sort of morphologic and generating a report on a bone marrow, we don't need the MRD. So that depends on the clinician. Uh, it depends on, you know, whether the patient is on a trial, uh, mm -hmm. what stage, 
do you need to do it? So you don't do yeah. it on your own right, unless right. triggered by the clinician. Right, right, right. Or we have, you know, we we know that in certain pa- patients that it's done at a specific time point or whatnot, but it's driven by the clinician uh, because you have to know when to do it uh, and why you want to do it and those kinds of things. So, so, so Patrick, as a clinician, where are, I mean, help us a little bit understand the scenarios where you pick up the phone or send an email and say, I want to know the status of the MRD of this patient. You do a lot of hematologic malignancies, so take us through, uh, at least in your mind, and maybe not through clinical trials. I think we know some clinical trials obviously dictate that on you, so it's kind of a robotic reflex. But we're talking just, you know, outside of clinical trials. Yeah, you know, it's a good I think the simplest way to frame the question would be there's two scenarios where we might want to measure MRD. One is, will it change our treatment? Meaning, well, based on the result of that test, may it cause me to treat a patient one way or another? And I'll give you an example of that in a second. The other is, does it have prognostic value to the patient? And so that latter, the prognostic value, that data is much more robust, much more, um, is, um, we have a longer time frame um, in various diseases. And so, so in the first scenario, so a good example of how I might change my management, and again, this is a little bit um, up for debate, but for a disease like acute lymphoblastic leukemia, we know that in adults, the, the best way to keep those patients in a long-term remission is to do a stem cell transplant, an allograft. However, we know that patients who come into transplant who have any disease at all, any minimal residual disease um, or measurable disease, those patients are at really high risk of relapsing even after a transplant. So in that scenario, if I do the tests and I run the flow and Dr. Kinney gives me the results and he says, you know, this is negative, we can't detect to whatever level based on the, the technicalities of the given flow machine. Um, that would actually push me towards taking a patient to transplant or not. Uh, the other side of the coin is prognostic. So in many diseases, ALL, AML, myeloma, you know, it makes sense. Any disease is bad. And then based on the level of detection, um, that may be more powerful or not. I think the classic example in the disease I treat the most is in myeloma. So there was a big study, the IFM study that was published a few years ago. This was basically a big study where they looked at maintenance after a transplant for myeloma. And they found that those patients who were MRD positive, um, and this was based off of a flow on a Euroflow platform, a year out from transplant, actually had a worse survival. So sometimes now I have patients that are out from transplant, I offer them that test. I say, this is not going to change how we can manage you. However, there's not a lot of things I can tell myeloma patients that would impact their survival. And so I'm doing more and more of those tests now because of that. When you do the test for prognostic reasons, so uh, the example you, you provided us, um, you, it may not affect your therapy, mm. but it helps you maybe have a more intelligent conversation with a patient in terms of prognosis. How is the patient's reception? I'm just trying, picturing myself sitting with you in the room and you're telling me the prognosis is worse, mm-hmm. uh, which I would appreciate as a patient, I want to know, but then I'll be upset you're telling me there's nothing you can do about it. Like, how? help me understand the interaction and do you really feel it helps patient? Does it cause more anxiety? 
help us understand it's good, that. It's a good question, and it's something that I, again, I think I offer to the patients, and I do, I think it's very important as clinicians that we tell them why are we doing a given test, what information is it going to give give us, and are we going to do something, what are we going to do with that information, and so you're right, some patients would, would care not to know, and many patients, to be honest, don't want to have a procedure um, if it's not going to change their management. Oh, so you have to do it on the bone you marrow. You have to do a bone marrow biopsy. Not Sorry, on the blood. Clip. Yeah, the blood, unfortunately, at least in myeloma, and actually in many diseases, it's just not a sensitive enough test. If you can detect circulating plasma cells or leukemia cells, you know, the, the MRD is out of the discussion at that point. So I, so I think it's, a, it's, a, it's an information question. I think just like in, in any disease, some patients want more information than less. I would say the caveat here is that there are currently many clinical trials that are now trying to, to actually use that information and change the management of the patient. So there's definitely a lot more to come here. Is every hematologic malignancy potentially you could do an MRD on? I mean, is like essentially you could do this on diffuse large B-cell lymphoma? Can I do an MRD on that? Definitely, and it's just a matter, like Dr. Kinney was saying, of the technique. I mean, circulating tumor DNA, there's a lot of other methodologies that we haven't even directly discussed. Um, I mean, in fact, there's a mantle cell lymphoma, for example. We're doing an MRD study right now through our cooperative groups, where we're actually, like I said, um, going to change the man. This is a PCR-based test, one of the methodologies that Dr. Kinney mentioned. Um, we're actually going to randomize patients to getting a transplant or not based on that MRD test. So, yes, I think the short answer to that is I think every disease there is an applicability to MRD. Again, it's what's the technique and is the information going to change management or change prognosis, so on and so forth. And then today, today we are taping in 2020, the management changes in ALL. I think you provide this as an example. Mm -hmm. Any other diseases outside of trials where... In your view, there is evidence that management should change based on the MRD aside from ALL. Because ALL does change your management, yeah, right? Yeah, I mean, I would, you know, AML has some similar data, although, again, um, not to the point I think that's changing management um, because relapses in AML, for example, are, are less subtle. That's probably the best way to put it. Um, but really, there, there really, unfortunately, there isn't a lot of, um, treatment changes we can make specifically based on MRD, at least as of today. Okay, that's interesting. So, um, uh, Amit, the with MRD hematologic malignancies, so solid tumors don't have MRDs, right? I mean, are there? Can you think of a scenario where the solid tumors are very different, right? For the listeners, this is purely issue that we deal with hemalignancies or so if you look at it, uh, most of the literature and data that we have in MRD is from hematologic malignancies, and the reason is it's just easier to get hold of the cells. When you have circulating cells, you know, you can do flow cytometry and PCR and whatnot, and with solid tumors, it's much harder, right? Uh, so, you, it's, so typically we don't do, say, flow and other techniques with solid tumors. So I think it's a matter of it being technically difficult. But like Dr. Hagen mentioned, there are alternatives, including um, you know the liquid biopsy type, uh, you know, free DNA that you can detect. I was going to ask you, is this right. MRD? Like when people say cell-free yeah. DNA, and is that MRD or no? So it could be, but it has to be validated for that use. And as you know, it's very, very tricky. Um, and so we have to know whether 
the significance of detecting cell-free DNA at a certain level? Is it quantitative? Uh, does it predict prognosis? So I think overall, I would say the solid tumor, because of these technical difficulties, is uh, much like behind the hematologic malignancies. But I think you know, as techniques progress, it's possible that we'll use MRD and solid tumors as well. But but it's it's a very tricky thing to do right now technically. Yeah, uh, Patrick, a couple of questions because they just come up a lot. I mean, um, you mentioned obviously the expertise of the pathologists and the clinicians is very important, and uh, you work in a specialized center, in an academic center. How do you see the less specialized oncologist in the community who is more of a general oncologist, the level of understanding of MRD? Because oftentimes you hear, well, I, I read, you know, I mean, I don't even understand the report very well. It's not really clear to me. It doesn't affect my management. Is there a gap there between academia and community when it comes to MRD knowledge? Yeah, I think in, in short, yes. You know, in all, in all fairness, when we started getting our flow MRD reports that were coming from outside, at first even when I was looking at these for myeloma, which is disease I specialize, I didn't even completely understand the report. So, so in fairness, this is a complex issue, and the science is complex, and I'm still learning every day more and more about this. So I think, you know, one of the advantages is of the disease I treat in myeloma is that we actually now have a commercially approved um, FDA, commercially available FDA approved technique. So I think, and that's an adapt, uh, that's a clonal platform, it's a PCR based test, it's been very validated. Um, so I think there are certain, in, the, in certain situations, where I think the average practitioner in the community who's seeing most of these patients, most of these patients aren't being seen at academic centers, can utilize a test like that and I feel feel comfortable with the results, feel comfortable with the information. I mean, many of these other tests, flow-based tests that really haven't been validated on long, larger scales, I think are, are, again, still, even though we've come a long way in their infancy. And so, so yeah, I, I would understand the frustration of looking at those tests and being able to interpret it and make decisions based on those. So, so I, I, I think that uh, if there is a frustration and, and questions about it, I, I think they're validated. And I think the average practitioner just has to understand that we have a lot more to learn um, yet. So, Do you, um, and I'm, I want to make sure I explain, I want to hear from you and from Amit, but I want to try to explain this to listeners again in a little bit more granular detail because Amit just mentioned NGS, for example, right, which is a... Do you view this as another way to detect MRD that's different because people talk about NGS as a way to detect targetable mutations and things like that? I mean, so, so do you do NGS on leukemic patients, on myeloma patients? Uh, help us understand that. Yeah, again, I think that's different information. I think, um, so we do send next-gen sequence testing on many of our myeloid malignancies. I think, again, the tricky thing is, is there, as of right now, um, none of our diagnostic, WHO diagnostic algorithms, for example, would say you can use a next-gen sequencing result to make a diagnosis or change management. But it's useful information. I, I think the the, I think the simplest way to think about MRD is no matter what technique you're talking about is level of sensitivity. So how sensitive is that test? So I mean, how little disease is it able to detect? 
And I think that's the nuts and bolts of the question um, at hand. So, I mean, we can talk about all these different platforms, and Dr. Kinney is saying we have to validate, validate them in each disease in each setting, um, but ultimately it comes down to a, a question of sensitivity. And then what does that mean? So I'll give you one example. So in a disease like AML, AML is not a chronic disease. You have two options in acute myeloid leukemia clinically. You can get that patient into remission and they will stay there, or they relapse aggressively and need to actively be on aggressive therapy. Myeloma, on the other hand, is a chronic disease. We can't cure myeloma patients. They're eventually going to relapse and need subsequent lines of therapy, no matter what. So an MRD test in an AML is going to give you very different information than an MRD test in myeloma. So mm -hmm. I think, again, level of sensitivity and then context is it's critically very important. Amit, yeah. uh, um, the NGS piece that right. you just uh, right. alluded to, um, that's the... Is that how you detect for acute myeloid leukemia? Is that what you do to detect the IDH1 mutations, IDH2, right. FLT3? Right. Is that what you're doing right now, NGS type of thing? So NGS can be used for two things. So one is to detect all these different mutations, and there's like literally a couple of hundred mutations that you can look at. So NGS is useful for that. But in terms of MRD, um, it's a different story, right? So. And especially in AML, it's very, very uh, complicated. So flow cytometry in AML is useful because it's applicable to all cases, pretty much, 100% cases. So I can just look for an abnormal phenotype, or I can compare it to you know, what the patient had in the past. Molecular techniques for AML for looking at MRD is a little bit more complicated. And the traditional sort of PCR-based techniques are applicable only to about 40%, maybe 50% of cases, because you can look for, you know, NPM and PML, RAR alpha, and a few others, but you would know, need to know what to look for. You can't use a general technique, because you can't use the same primers or something that you can use, say, uh, in a B-cell malignancy. You can't use that with molecular techniques. NGS may be a little bit better uh, in uh, increasing the applicability, uh, but NGS for AML is not as well-developed as it is for uh, myeloma and for ALL. So NGS has two different uses where it ha does have widespread use in AML, is to characterize the initial set of mutations, but typically we're well, not... Why, why can't you repeat NGS after therapy and say, okay, I characterized the treatment before, right, right. I gave treatment, right. can't I do NGS after? So there are lots of... It basically comes down to technical issues. And um, so generally the recommendation is... so you know, the, the new mutations and things like that. And uh, so I think it's a matter of overcoming those technical issues. And eventually it might be useful um, for AML just as it's useful for, you know, myeloma. Um, but in AML, it's a little bit more complicated to do that yet. So I think flow cytometry um, in AML is still, um, you know, pretty useful. There was a paper from the European Leukemia Net in blood published a couple of years ago in which they had recommendations um, on how to go about doing uh, MRD, so um, flow cytometry. And again, you have to remember these are sort of moving targets. Right. I mentioned the sensitivity being uh, one in 10, um, one in 1,000 to one in 10,000 flow, but now there's something called next generation flow. It's kind of a fancy name, which basically <laughs> means, more uh, you know, more lasers, <laughs> and uh, but it sounds cool, so uh, NGF or whatever. So um, 
The terminology is challenging. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, it overlaps. And right. So with that, you can, uh, you know, probably reach one in ten to the fifth, uh, maybe one in ten to six if you have a lot of cells to, to work with. Um, but Sometimes that, when it comes to NGS, people say, you know, yes, you you just mentioned you do this two hundred mutations, and right. and people will push back and say, okay, two hundred mutations, but I only know three mutations that might affect my management. So, right, right. Uh, what, what's your answer to that? I mean, is yeah. this um, um, is, are we overdoing it? Are we we should do it and just wait until we find out why? What's what's your thoughts as a pathologist? Yeah, no, it's a very very tricky thing because when you're detecting hundreds of mutations, you're not quite sure uh, which mutations are the mutations seen in the leukemic cell because as you know you have things like chip and you know so you might have pre-leukemic clones that might have certain mutations which are not that relevant to the actual AML cell so you know when you do these really sensitive methods you're not quite sure whether you're Detecting yeah, yeah static or actual right. you know granular information right, to help you right, treat the patient. Right. So and plus uh, you know, if it's a germline mutation, then it totally messes things up because then, you know, you can't really use MRD in that setting um, because you have these mutations in, you know, half the cells to begin with. But um, so yeah, that's where it can be really tricky. And then you have things like VUS, the, the variance of uncertain or undetermined significance. So I think you have to be very careful um, in general when you're looking at these uh, 200 or whatever gene panels and understand the significance um, in terms of the disease pathogenesis. All that depends on having really good bioinformatics, really good annotations for each mutation. And once in a while, we do come across uh, mutations which are variants of uh, uncertain significance, so we should be careful not to overdiagnose. So there are all these issues that um, can arise the more information we have. So, right. And Patrick, the, there are various companies or vendors that talk about doing MRD and NGS and so forth. There has been some literature, uh, I can recall a paper published in JAMA Oncology a year or two years ago about sometimes discordant results where some occasionally, depends who you send to, you may get different information. Um, and you're not supposed to, to, to put a plug to anyone, but in your experience, have you seen a lot of discrepancies and how do you reconcile that and uh, and really the larger question for me is how do we make sure that clinicians in the community interpret the results properly, especially when it comes to NGS? Seems like MRD to me, seems like a little bit more straightforward just listening to you both talking, but please comment on that. Yeah, and it's it's a good comment. I, I would say, you know, we obviously at each institution, you choose which vendors you're going to work with. The indiscrepancy between different vendors for the same sort of NGS platform has is, is been described. Um, so again, I think it's you as a group or your institution just doing your due diligence and actually our pathology department does a great job on this, which is actually part of the reason why we don't roll out tests right away. We really want to make sure that we're working with the right vendor, the vendor fits your institution. Um, so I think in general, you know, most of these vendors are fine, but I, I guess the the answer is you got You just have to do your homework. And um, again, you know, you made the comment that the MRD is more established. I would say it's probably not really the case. I mean, again, how many FDA approved platforms are there for MRD analyses? One. One. 
right? Right. right. So, and it's only in two diseases. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, we have to just, we have to just, I, I know we keep saying this, but you have to just keep reiterating this. You know, information is important, but validation is critical. So, I think the other point is we kind of assume, I think, that this is more of a philosophical point that the more information we have, the better. And I'm not sure about that, right? So, unless, you know, we can show that having this information will ultimately improve outcomes. I think it's an open question. So I think uh, a lot of people would say that um, is NGS useful not, maybe we should do like a randomized trial, right? I mean, we are just assuming that because we detected this mutation, maybe we can do targeted therapies. But I think it's still an open question as to uh, whether we can improve outcomes. Um, and the assumption is that we can, but I think it's still important to show that we can, or else, you know, there's also the cost of, you know, the issue of expense and uh, overdiagnosis and all that. So I think all that plays into that. So I think it's important, but I know it's very difficult to randomize and do these trials, but ultimately, uh, I think that's what we need to show efficacy of a certain technique. Right. So, Patrick, from an MRD, going back just to MRD, if I'm a clinician and you, and I'm talking to you and I say, you know what? MRD is not going to change my management. I'm not going to check it unless you show me it's going to change my management. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to check it. What? How would you? What would you tell me? I think that's 100% fair, <laughs> and I would say I think our tendency in the treating many of the diseases that I treatment is to make decisions based off those tests that we don't have the data to support those decisions. So I do think we're kind of leaning too quickly towards making decisions that we can't back up. Um, so I would say if you're doing a test that you know is not going to change your management, it's very reasonable just to say, I'm not going to do it. Um, mm-hmm. I think that that's a very reasonable approach with the caveat that we're doing a lot of these studies to get that information, but it's not there right now. Are there some real-world studies now that are ongoing to monitor the fate of the FDA-approved test for MRD to see how it's being utilized outside of clinical trials, how often it's being checked, how it's going to affect things. You mentioned the um, Clonoseq uh, mm-hmm. test that's FDA approved, uh, and obviously anybody can order it now, yep. right, because it's available. Are there um, prospective or registry or observation, whatever you want to call it, looking at the impact now on patients now that it's approved, or I don't know the answer to that. Yeah, and actually, I don't, I'm sure there are. I don't know off the top of my head of those trials, because they would be ongoing. Are you tracking um, your own patients, or not really? We, yeah, so uh, we track, I track all of our, all of our myeloma patients, um, particularly those who have gone through transplant, so I've, although I'm tracking it, for example, I've not gone back and looked at our data in terms of who's using it, how much are we testing for it. So, uh, yeah, I'm sure that there, it's being looked at. But it's not, it's different. So often, for example, the FDA will approve a new therapeutic in cancer care based on phase two data, and then they'll say, you know what, you got to go out and do a, a randomized phase two or a phase three, and it's a conditional approval, we may withdraw that. You know, with, the, with an MRD test, the stakes are different. So I would be very surprised if the FDA ever removed the, the, the indication. Um, but I would be hope that somebody would have the motivation to look at the real world data because that's very important. So Amit, uh, if you know, what's the future holding for MRD in terms of testing and and so forth? What uh, what do you think? Well, a is what should we have covered from a pathology standpoint about MRD that I may have not asked you about that you think 
is important to listeners. And if we're having this conversation in a couple of years, also about MRD and maybe a little bit about NGS, how do you envision this conversation would go? Yeah, so I think, like we mentioned, it's a really rapidly moving field. And um, if you look at the literature from just, like, say, three or four years ago, we've come a long way. In general, the sensitivity has been increasing. So, like I talked about flow, um, from 1 in 10 to the 3rd or 10 to the 4th, we are now pushing 10 to the 5th and 6th. Um, where we are lagging a little bit behind, I think, is standardization, and that's true for all platforms, be it Flow or Molecular or NGS. But there's a lot of you know, initiatives that are taking place now which will improve standardization, which I think is a good thing. There's like the Euroflow and many other initiatives, um, which I think will help a lot. But I think, like we discussed, the part which is lacking is what is the significance of this. and. Uh, so that's something I think will take a so little... So if we're having the conversation in a couple of years, you think we'd have resolved this? I mean, um, to pontificate and put your futuristic right. hat on. Yeah, I think a lot of things we probably will not have resolved. Because right. to get the clinical data uh, to show that... Well, one thing is to show the prognosis, and we have a lot of data about prognosis, right? The question is, um, can we do something about it? So that's a much more difficult question to answer, and it depends on disease. For example, in, you know, the disease that you work a lot with, CLL, it might take a long time to show a difference um, between arms or in diseases, even like ALL, where we have really good uh, outcomes, we'll have to look for minute differences. So, you know, those things take time um, to show. So I think to show a difference in outcomes will probably take a little bit longer. It depends on the disease. And I think uh, one more thing which we didn't talk about is... Um, using a MRD as a surrogate marker. Um, and uh, I think there's a lot of interest in that, that it might help in clinical Actually, trials. Actually, that was my planned question oh, to okay. him. Oh, okay. No, no, it's good. It's good you oh, asked so, it because so I was going to ask but, Patrick. Ahead. But I think uh, I bring that up because I think we have to be super careful about using um, MRD as a surrogate marker in general uh, because one is that, you know, you really have to validate it um, across multiple trials. That's very important. And, and I think it depends also on the um, regimen. So uh, we can't assume that because MRD has some predictive value uh, in with one drug that it will work with the second drug. Um, I think in CLL, there's an example, I think the trial where it was bendamustine, uh, rituximab, and ibrutinib that um, having low MRD actually went the opposite way. It, it you know, went against progression-free survival. So so I think um, that's where a lot of people are trying to use MRD, uh, but I think uh, we have to be, we have to work a little bit slowly, get a lot of data before we use it for that. So Patrick, kind of same question to you. Do you think there are issues pertaining to MRD on the clinical side that I may, I should have asked you that I did not ask you, and and where do you see that field moving if we're here in a couple of years talking about MRD? Uh, how do you think the conversation would go uh, in general? Yeah, I mean, I, I think, no, I think we've hit a lot of the highlights. I, I think, again, you know, getting to the surrogacy point that um, Amit just highlighted, you know, progression and death is black and white, unfortunately. And obviously, we don't wish that for any of our patients, but it's a very 
um, clear thing to measure. MRD, as we've talked about, has many challenges, although the field is growing and I think getting stronger. So I would tread caution on using such surrogacies to change the paradigm of care for a given disease. Um, and I How about FDA drug approval based on MRD? So if other, in other words, could MRD because, and the reason I ask, because some diseases are just... Are rare. Right? Yeah. Rare, and some of them are actually long, like the CLL, or some diseases are so chronic that overall survival may take 10, 15 years to, to achieve. So MRD as a surrogacy to get FDA approval. What are your thoughts on that as a clinician? I have hesitancy because you're talking about the, we have multiple therapies that are working really well, which one just also causes more MRD. And so um, I, I, I would, again, really tread cautiously with that. You know, this was, I'll give you a very specific example. So there's a big trial, myeloma trial, that just opened up. It's a SWOG-led trial. And it's looking after transplant, the, the standard of care for myeloma patients to get one maintenance drug. After high-dose melphalan and stem cell transplant, they go on a drug called Revlimid. This is the standard of care very well established. The trial is trying to look at, should if we add another drug, a drug called daratumumab, can we improve outcomes? To the Revlimid maintenance? To the Revlimid maintenance. And then it has a very important MRD question, actually, at two years. So patients are going to get randomized to one of those two arms after transplant. And then at two years, both arms will undergo MRD testing. And those patients who are MRD negative will be randomized to stop therapy or continue. So that's a very important trial in myeloma. There was a lot of controversy over what should the primary endpoint of that trial be. Should it be MRD? Should it be progression? Should it be survival? In the end, even though it's going to be a very long trial, it was decided that what matters most for these patients is that they're alive and without their disease. And so the endpoint of this trial will be survival. And to your point, it's going to take about 10 years before we have right. that answer. Um, but our myeloma patients are living You'd be retired, Patrick. No, 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 no. <laughs> this is a good problem to have. Well, that's my point. So I, I just, I'm very hesitant um, to, to use MRD as a surrogate, although I understand the motivation in the question. I think it's a good question. Sure. Well, Amit will be retired for sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So final thoughts, uh, Amit, from your standpoint, just in general, yeah. and uh, what would you like to leave our listeners with? And then I'll turn the microphone to Patrick. Yeah, so I think uh, just again, philosophically, um, if you think about these techniques, which are getting better and better and more and more sensitive, the fundamental problem, I think, is similar to what we talk about when you talk about things like cancer screening. It's a loose analogy, to be sure, because the question is, if you find something, first of all, does it uh, mean that the patient will relapse? In some diseases, it means definitely, but in some others, you're not so sure. For example, ALL, we know that not every MRD-positive patient will have disease. We have patients who, when children who have MRD-positive and, you know, 10 years have passed and they still have relapse. So those patients clearly don't need additional treatment. So can we identify who needs treatment? And secondly, you know, if we can identify who needs interventions or maybe less interventions, we have to prove that, right? We have to prove that whatever we do um, causes greater good than harm. And the only way I think you can do that is to, to randomize. But that takes long. It's difficult to do. So I think these are very difficult uh, conceptual questions about MRD and about screening, which are kind of loosely um, tied together. So, But you know, the good thing is 
uh, all these different techniques, I think, have opened up uh, new insights, uh, not just into how disease progress, but also into biology. And hopefully, based on that, we can uh, have better treatment for patients because that's what matters. That's great. Patrick, any final thoughts you want to leave our listeners with regarding the topic or whatever else we may have missed? Yeah, I think the a critical point of MRD is knowing what you're testing for and understanding um, that every testing platform and every disease has its own um, indications in terms of the result of that test. And so so I would tell the listeners, you know, I, I you know, information is powerful. We have to know what we're going to do with that information. And anytime you're going to do a test with a patient, you just really have to talk to them about it and, you know, come up to a decision so you're not stuck with a result that's only causing more confusion. So I, I think that that's important. And again, there's a lot more to learn, but I think that's a really important clinical take-home point. Well, I want to thank both of you. I think it's a challenging topic. I don't think there are very easy answers. I do think it's important to ask all of these questions. If we don't ask questions, we will never get the answers that we need to to get. So thank you both for your time. I really appreciate it. And uh, I'd like to visit with you maybe again so we could see how things have changed. So thank you for your time. Thank you, Jerry. Absolutely. Okay, folks, thank you so much for listening to this episode. I really enjoy taping it and discussing this important topic with Drs. Amit Kinney and Patrick Hagen. Please let me know how you think this podcast is going. Please send me any feedback. You can direct message me on Twitter at Shadi Nabhan. That's at C-H-A-D-I-N-A-B-H-A-N. You can also send me an email to cnabhan1968 at gmail.com or to shadinabhan00 at outlook.com. I promise that I will address all of the comments, all of the issues, and I will do my best to incorporate all of your suggestions into future episodes of this podcast. Find us on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, all podcast outlets, and please rate, review, subscribe, and refer colleagues to this podcast. Before I let you go, I want to leave you with a quotation or a saying from Winston Churchill, and it might be fitting because we live in this very politicized environment right now. So Winston Churchill once said, politics is more dangerous than war, for in war, you are only killed once. Until next time, take care of yourselves.